at Acts 4, 23 through 31. It's a powerful, powerful passage. I'll read it initially and then we'll, we'll go from there. So Acts 4, 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together for God to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage in the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers who were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Let us pray together. God, this is your word. I pray that we would be faithful stewards of it. I pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see you, that you would open our ears to hear what you would have to say. I pray that you would be glorified in all of it, and that through this you would fill us with your boldness, that we may proclaim the gospel more fully, that you would have it. Amen. So before we actually dig into going through the passage itself, I want to take a step back and I want to look at the context. I think it's incredibly important to whenever we're coming to the word of God to know who it was spoken to, what it was spoken for, the kind of literature that it is. Is it history, poetry, etc., that kind of thing. It's especially important in sermons like this where We're not going from the beginning of Acts through to the end. We're jumping right here in the middle. And so I I think it's especially important in this situation to take a step back and look at what is going on. So the context for this we're going to see is that this passage, Acts 4, 23-31, is bookended by two separate instances of God's people being persecuted for proclaiming the gospel. Okay? Bookended by two separate instances, two separate occurrences. The first one we find immediately prior to the passage we're in this morning, which is Acts 4, 1 through 22. In this situation, it's just Peter and John, the only two of the apostles that this happened to. And so they're proclaiming the gospel. They heal a man. And the religious leaders notice that this is going on. And realizing that the effect that this is having on the people, they don't arrest them because they know that that would cause a riot. And so they ask them, hey, can, can you come with us? And they take them in to talk to them in the temple. And so the religious leaders are gathered there and they're talking to the disciples, Peter and John, and they basically interrogate them as to what they're doing. And Peter tells them the gospel and they tell them, well, you need to stop. And Peter says, we can't. And so the Pharisees, their response at that point is to threaten them. And then let them go. So this is the first instance of persecution that happens. And this is what we read immediately prior to the passage that we're in this morning. So when we go into verse 23, when it says when they were released, it's talking about Peter and John after this encounter with the religious leaders 
an encounter with the world. And I'm going to characterize it a lot this morning as the world, not specifically as the religious leaders, because the world can take many different forms. It can look a lot of different ways. And so when we come to it, we're going to be looking at it that way. It's the world persecuting the church for proclaiming Christ. So, like I said before, this is bookended by two separate instances. So on the other side, we have Acts 5, 17 through 42. So the main characterization I would make of this second instance is that it's one of escalation. The world realizes that what they did the first time isn't working, and so they up the ante, so to speak. They raise the stakes. And so in this instance, it's not just Peter and John this time. It's all of them. It's all 12 of the apostles. They're arrested at this point. Initially, they're put in prison. And so they're put in prison. God miraculously, divinely intervenes. And the apostles are released from the jail. And when the religious leaders go to get them, to talk to them, they're not there. They're like, where are they? They're actually in the temple. They didn't run away. They didn't leave to hide or do anything like that. They're in the temple doing what they were doing before, which is proclaiming the gospel. And so they talk to them there. Some of the Pharisees are really, really angry at this point. And they think at this point they need to die. And ultimately, though, cooler heads prevail And so they beat them instead, and then they threaten them, and then they let them go. So you can see that it's escalating, right? It's getting worse. And if you continue to read through the book of Acts, it doesn't stop there. The world continues to increase pressure on Christians for proclaiming the gospel because the Christians weren't stopping. So this is the context in which we're looking. We looked at both sides. Persecution experienced by God's people. And we'll we'll come back later and look a little bit more at the second instance because it's coming after the passage we're in. So we'll come back a little bit later and look at that a moment longer. But for now, let's go ahead and let's go to the text we're in this morning. This is Acts chapter 4, 23 through 31. As we go through it, you'll see that we'll be able to break it up into distinct parts. We won't do that initially. We'll wait till we get to the prayer, and then we'll do that structure. But for now, let's just go ahead and go. And so verse 23, when they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends. They went immediately to the other apostles and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, and then starts the prayer. So let's stop there for a moment. And let's look at it. So Peter and John, they go to their friends and they tell them everything that happened, right? Everything that came before. Like, look, they took us in. They questioned us. Um, we told them that we couldn't stop. So they issued threats against us. And, um, and then we left. And this is, this is where we're at. And so it's remarkable to me that their first response is prayer. I think typically... Even as a Christian, and I'm guilty of this every day, that when something happens, something goes wrong, my first response isn't typically like, I need to stop and pray. Typically, I'm like, okay, well, let me fix it. And, you know, if all else fails, if I reach that point where it's like, well, I guess we pray. But the disciples here, they didn't do that. This is the first knee-jerk response to persecution, opposition to what they're saying, which is the gospel. Their first response is, 
We need to pray. I think that's a remarkable statement as to the power of prayer, that it should be the Christian's first response. Not that we don't do things after, like maybe after prayer, we then go out and then we go to, okay, now how can we in God and Christ fix this or whatever it is, you know. But their first response is prayer. The second thing I would note is that they prayed together with one voice. They didn't separate and go into their own prayer closets to speak to God. But the church gathered together, the early church, the apostles, they're gathered together and they pray together with one voice. And I think that's also incredibly important, the power of prayer when it's the church that prays together. It's not when the distinct parts of the body pray separately, but when it's the body collectively, the body of Christ crying out to him together. I think that's an amazing, remarkable thing. So now we come to the prayer. The prayer has a unified theme. It's one that underlines specifically God's sovereign rule, that he is king. The second thing that it notes is that the world is reflexively, instinctively, and naturally opposing Christ always. That is the natural state of what the world does, because it doesn't accept him. If it accepted him, it would be of Christ and no longer of the world. But if it is of the world, then naturally it's going to oppose Christ when it intrudes into whatever it's doing. So it's those two distinct things and the interactions between those two realities that we're going to be looking at this morning. So as we come to the prayer itself, it begins with a declarative statement about who God is. And this, I believe, is the foundation on which the rest of the prayer is built. So it says, verse 24, when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. This is its first statement. This is the foundation on every built on which everything else is standing. And so when we look through the rest of the prayer, you'll notice immediately that the one thing I mentioned before is being the other side of the coin for the theme of this passage, which is the world opposing Christ. It's not present here. And this is incredibly important. Christ and the world are not this yin-yang relationship. It's not where God and the devil are on this cosmic seesaw where God wins one and then the devil wins one, and it just keeps kind of going back and forth. It's not the opposition of the world and Christ that are interacting on that level. Underlying everything is God's sovereign rule and authority and kingship. They are not equal. There's a distinction, and that distinction is that God always is foundational, and everything else we have to understand in light of who he is and what he is doing and everything that goes with that. So the foundational statement, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The next thing to note is that they are stating that God has authority because he has created. And I think we could reason out God's authority through different means, like, well, he's all powerful. That's a big one. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He is the ultimate good. He is everything that is good. 
And he's the source of all of it. So we could argue that along all those lines, he has authority because of these things. But here, the apostles, in the midst of these circumstances that they're in, they feel the need to call on God as creator. You have created everything. And so they're tying his creative power to his authority. The Apostle Paul does a similar thing in Romans 9.23 when he's talking about the potter and vessels made of clay. And Paul basically makes the argument that if God makes a vessel made of clay, he has the authority to do with it whatever he wants to because he made it. And the same thing could be argued here, only the apostles extrapolate it to everything. And they say, all that is created, they say earth and sea, heaven, earth, sea, everything in them. That encompasses all of creation. All of creation is under God's authority because he has made it. And so they're equating creative action to God's complete authority. They are not distinct. They're tied together. So as we look at the rest of the prayer, we can see that it's broken up into three instances where God's sovereign power and the opposition of the world against Christ, his gospel and his church. We're going to see three instances of this as we go through the rest. That's what it's made up of. We're going to see initially an Old Testament example where the world is opposing Christ in the Old Testament and national Israel. We're going to see the second instance where it goes forward in time to Christ. We're going to see the opposition of the world to the person of Christ in his life. In the third instance, we're going to see that God is talking about, I mean, the apostles, they're, they're bringing forward their own circumstances. They're bringing a contemporary perspective because this is now the church and we are the church. So we're going to see Old Testament reality, Christ, and then New Testament church reality as we go through the rest of the prayer. So first, let's go with that first instance, verse 25, 26. So they just established God as king, right, who made everything. They say in verse 25, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So this is a quotation. They're quoting Old Testament scripture. This is Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2. We can see even in this Old Testament day that the world is rising up against God. And we're seeing that specifically as they rise up against God's people, which in this day was national Israel. So persecution for God's people is not a new thing that just sprang up in the New Testament. It's just like, what do we do with this? This is new. This has always been the case. So the Gentiles raged, the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And that's incredibly important because it points to this passage. It's not just opposition against God's people. They're opposing the anointed who is Christ. So it's always been the world rising up against Christ. Another important thing to note is the the weakness of the world and its rising up against Christ. If you continue reading in Psalm 2, specifically verse starting in verse 4, it's not quoted here in Acts in the prayer, but it states, He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in 
derision. And so when the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain and the world rises up against God and his anointed and his people. This is a futile thing because creation cannot harm God. Remember, this isn't where a yin yang relationship where there's just this symbiosis between God and the devil or the world or good and evil or anything like this. This is always God as king and the world rebelling against it and God using the rebellion of the world to accomplish his purpose. Bringing good through the evil of the world. So the Lord, he sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. So again, the hatred of the world for Christ and his people. That falls under the umbrella of God's sovereign lordship. Another important thing to note is that this passage is also prophetic. Because it's true in the Old Testament that when the world rose up against God's people, it was in reality rising up against Christ. It's also true that the world would do the same thing to the incarnate Christ when he came to earth. And we can see this clearly as we continue on in the prayer to the second instance of um, the interaction between God's kingship and the opposition of the world. When we continue on in verse 27, truly in this city. They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Again, the word anointed there. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is a hard verse. I think typically when we think about culpability or responsibility for Christ and his crucifixion, I think, I think we can go like a number of ways there. We could say that, well, you know, it lists Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, peoples of Israel. Everyone was there, right? There's no party absent from this group, so we are all complicit, right? That's one way, and I, that's reasonable, and that's right. A second way you could think about it is more of an inward focus. That when Christ went to be crucified, I was there in a way. And I cried, crucify him. I was the one who drove him to Golgotha. And I was the one who drove the nails. And I was the one who thrust the spear and cast lots for his clothes. It was me. That's me. I think it's right to think of it that way. Because it was our sin that held him there. Right? But the apostles don't go that way. They say that they they note and underline the evil that was perpetrated by the world. And they note who was complicit. They don't deny it. They say it was Herod. It was Pontius Pilate. It was all the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel. And then it says to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And so here we can see God's kingship extends everything. Even these blatant, the most wicked act that was ever perpetrated in human history. God is using it to accomplish his will. And it's always been part of the plan. If you read in Isaiah 53.10, a very popular passage. I think specifically we mention it a lot during Christmas and Easter time, those celebratory times. But here in Isaiah 53.10 it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord 
to crush him. And so when I read a passage like this, it makes me think of a, of a different father. It makes me think of it was Genesis 23. There was a man named Abraham. So you, you know the story of Abraham. And one of the main important things regarding Abraham is the promise of a son. Right? When he was yet Abram, God called to him and said, I promise you, you're going to have a son. You're not going to die childless. This was a tremendous grief for Abram and Sarai. They didn't have a child. So God says, you won't languish here. I'm going to give you a child. And so years pass, decades. They're both significantly older, well beyond the point where you could conceivably have a child by all. It just it shouldn't happen, but it does because God has made it so. And as a father myself, the joy that he would have felt when he held that boy. So Isaac grows, and God calls to Abraham again. At this point, his name is Abraham. And God says to him, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Take your son. There's a place, there's this mountain I want you to go to. I'll tell you where. I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering. What is the agony that he would have felt? So Abraham obeys. He takes Isaac. He gathers an entourage of sorts, and they journey to where the place that God has called them to go. They arrive at that place. They have everything they need for the sacrifice. So Abraham tells everyone, you know, the entourage, stay here. Isaac and I are going up alone. So they do. And I don't know at what point Isaac asks. If it's while they're walking there. It's when they get to the top and they see there's no lamb. So Isaac turns to his dad. He says, we have all the wood. We have everything we need for the fire. Where's the lamb? So Abraham says to him, God himself will provide the lamb. And there's, there's nothing in this passage which would make me think that Abraham actually knew, because we know the story. We know how this ends. But there's nothing in Abraham that would make him think it's going to be anything other than Isaac, because that's what God told him. And so he says, God will provide the lamb. And as he reaches out his hand to slaughter his son, the angel of the Lord intervenes, right? He says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son. What a phrase. Your son, your only son from me. So Abraham turns around. And there's a ram caught in a thicket. And they sacrifice that in Isaac's place. And Abraham goes on and he names that place. The Lord will provide. God will provide the lamb. And so when we fast forward to 
to our text, can you see this thread that goes through all of history where God is king and he's calling everything according to his own purposes, his own plan. And part of that plan included that he would take his son, his only son, whom he loved, and he would give him in our place. So you can see even all this opposition, this doesn't negate the reality of the evil that is accomplished through the hands of Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel. They're guilty. We're guilty. We did that. But even in spite of all of that, this is God giving the lamb. So even the cruelest evil, the wickedest opposition to Christ is all under God's authority and is happening according to his plan. So when we arrive at the crescendo of the prayer, which is 29 through 30, this is the third instance where it notates the opposition of the world against Christ and God's sovereign rule, his kingship, his authority. This is the apostles taking these truths that they've already walked through. You see, they've kind of structured like this mini argument to God. They're like, God, you were this, and because of this, because of this, we ask for this. So we arrive at this point. And they say, because of all these things, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they arrive at this point and they recognize that what is happening to them isn't abnormal. This is natural and this is what is supposed to happen. This is what the world naturally does and this is according to God's plan. And so when we get to this point... Their prayer is boldness. And it's, it's remarkable to me that, you know, as one commentator says, their prayer is not, Lord, behold their threatenings and frighten them to stop their mouths and fill their faces with shame. But behold their threatenings and animate us. Open our mouths and fill our hearts with courage. They do not pray, Lord, give us a fair opportunity to retire from our work now that it has become dangerous. But Lord, give us grace to go on in our work. And not to be afraid of the face of man. So they, they, in their prayer, they pray, God, make us bold. I think another important thing to note is it, it compares, we could compare what they're asking that they would be able to do and then what God will do. Let's read it again. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That last part, verse 30, that's all God. The apostles aren't doing any of that. This is all God doing each of these things through the power of the Holy Spirit by the name of Jesus. And so all the apostles are called to do is open their mouths, right, to proclaim the gospel. 
And even the power, the vehicle through which they can proclaim the gospel, boldness, is not theirs. They don't have that. This isn't their boldness. This is God's. And so every step along the way, you say, God, do these miraculous things. And when we open our mouths, make us bold. That's the prayer. And so we go on from there and God answers it right in 31 in power. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So God. Phrase, God shows up, right? His Holy Spirit through his power, he enables the apostles, to go forward from there, to speak with boldness in spite of what we know comes after. Because we know coming after there's going to be persecution, right? That's not going away, but they're made bold to do what they need to do through the power of God. So as we, we've we reached the end of the text, there's, there's several points I want to take, some that maybe we could take towards more application. That type of thing. The first is the relationship of the suffering of the Christian and God's authority as king. I think when we think of things that are taught in the church, there's certain lines of thought that we typically know that's not right. I think specifically of things like prosperity teaching, where it's like if you pray hard enough, if you believe hard enough, If you do all these things, if you give this amount, it's going to be well with you. You're going to make lots of money. It's going to be great. You're going to have a great relationship with everybody in your life. It's going to be good. I think typically if we try to live that way, we realize pretty quick that doesn't work. But I think sometimes, so typically we know, okay, well, that's not right. But I think sometimes we fall a little bit shy of there when we think, and I think especially evangelicals, that We can be guilty of this. And this is when we're doing ministry or we're we're talking about God or we're living, living for Jesus. When things happen that don't work, we typically think like, okay, well, I did something wrong. Something's not right. This isn't supposed to happen. Where are the numbers? Why did I get sick? Why? Why? And, And so we question and we typically tie it back to. Well, something's wrong, and if I fix the thing that's wrong, it'll get better. And that's not how this works in this passage. Faithfully teaching the gospel and proclaiming God's truth always has opposition that accompanies it. Now, you can't quantify it. You can't say, well, if you do this, you can't write a book and say, you know, pick up a book and say, okay, well, you proclaim the gospel in this way. Therefore, you should have these certain results. It's, it's not like that. You can't quantify it for yourself and you can't quantify it for other people what that'll look like because we can't. The persecution and the opposition of the world that we experience here in America can't, we can't, it's not apples and oranges that we can take and then compare it to persecution that's experienced by Christians in Afghanistan or in certain parts of Africa, or anywhere else in the world. And even in our specific context, if you turn to the next person in the pew, it's going to look different. It's not that we should be able to quantify and say, 
okay, I did this for Jesus, and therefore there, there should be this certain response, like this kind of problem should happen. Or you can't look at your neighbor and say, where's the, you know, everything's going great for them. Why is it hard for me? You can't, you can't quantify it that way. The only reality that we can take from here is that when you were following Christ and when you proclaim his name, when you proclaim his gospel, the world is sometimes going to attack you. And that's natural. That's what happens when you proclaim Christ, because the world hates God. It hates Christ. It hates its gospel. And it hates everything that Christ loves. And Christian, he loves you. So the world doesn't like you very much. The second thing I I'll call to your attention is the concept of boldness, because the point of the point of us going through this this morning is not for me to capstone it with go out and be bold. Because that's that's not God's boldness. That's something we conjure up in ourselves. This isn't a pull yourself up by your bootstraps, be a man kind of boldness, because that boldness always has a line that can be crossed. There's always a point you can say, well, I can't do that. That's too far. There's always a part where we'll cash out. So when we go to proclaim God's word, we have to pray, right? Say, God, give me your boldness. And I think that's an incredibly freeing thing, too. Because the apostles here... What did they do? They opened their mouths, and then God's boldness caused the gospel to come out. And so, you know, I think of Moses when God calls him to go to the Egyptians, and Moses says, well, I'm not a very good public speaker. I don't know if this is going to go well. God didn't need Moses to have that gifting. It's not about that. It's about what God can do. And so I think that we can be encouraged because when we go out to follow after Christ and when we proclaim his gospel, there's no part of me that has to, it's just all God. And we can pray for that and say, God, make me bold. Make me courageous for your name, for your word. This is the boldness that we need. The final point that I would call your attention is kind of like a two-pronged point. So it's kind of cheating. It's like, it's one point, it's two. Um, As I mentioned at the beginning, this passage is bookended by two separate instances of persecution. And then the second one, at the very end of the encounter, they've been arrested. God divinely intervenes. They're released. They go back in the temple. Religious leaders go in, they question them, they beat them, they let them go. And immediately following that, verse 41 of chapter 5, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What kind of statement is that? There's so many things that we could pull from it. And I I really just want to go to two things, but it's something I have to come back to and back to. God, make me like this, right? That I can rejoice 
There's two things. So the first thing is that when you are proclaiming the gospel, if you are following Christ, if you suffer because you're a Christian, if there is persecution, if there, whatever that looks like, because it can look like a lot of things. You know, maybe you're left out of something, or you know, people don't feel comfortable to talk to you about you know certain things because they know you're a Christian and they just you know they can't go there. You know, you could be a Christian in the workplace and someone would slip up in front of you and say a swear word and they'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. That kind of thing. There's there's always like a line that they see you as different, right? And so sometimes they treat you differently for it. And sometimes that can be in hurtful ways. So when we are living as a Christian and we experience this on the behalf of Christ, Through that, there is a remarkable, powerful demonstration of the gospel in it that can only be seen in those instances. In a way, in a way, Christ becomes incarnate in that suffering, in that persecution. They're not attacking you, they're attacking Christ. And so when they do that, it's like the gospel plays itself out all over again. So that's the first. Second thing I would say is that there's a special communion in it. That can be ex- By communion, I don't mean Lord's Supper, but re- a union with him. In times like that. And you can hear from folks that Christian people, when they experience a hardship or something, they can relate to you a special closeness with Christ. It was like he was there. Right? One theologian is named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said this, quote, when Christians are exposed to public insult, When they suffer and die for his sake, Christ takes on visible form in his church. Here we see the divine image created anew through the power of Christ crucified. But throughout the Christian life, from baptism to martyrdom, it is the same suffering and the same death. So when you suffer, it's Christ. And in that, there is a unique relationship, not relationship, a communion, interaction with him. In that quote, he mentions baptism. What is baptism? It's us identifying in our Christian walk with Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection. We're identifying with it. We count ourselves as part of it and saved by him. So when we are saved, when we are justified through faith by the power of Christ... We identify with him and become a part of his body. And God indwells the believer. So proclaiming Christ is a way in which we identify with him more fully. Right? We're telling the story again. Tell me that old, old story. So when we do that, we identify with him. 
right? And we experience him in that way. But then, when on top of that, the world says, oh, no, you don't. And it does something to get in your way. God is there. Christ is there. Isn't that a remarkable, amazing thing? And so because of that, because of Christ, in spite of everything, we can count everything joy. And as the disciples, we can leave the presence of the council, despite whatever we have gone through, and we can rejoice. Rejoice. So even in times when we are beset by things like that that happen, we can experience joy because of our God who is working in and through us to see the gospel proclaimed, to see lost sinners saved, and to see his people rejoice in unending joy that we may see and participate in glorifying him forever and ever, to enjoy him forever and ever. Do you know him? Because he is a good Good God.